I'm not sure everybody understands the extent to which he's weaponized the Florida government against his perceived enemies. This is something that American voters do not like. You saw it with the collapse of Chris Christie after Bridgegate, which if people don't remember, Chris Christie was punishing a mayor for failing to endorse him. That is like small potatoes compared to what Ron DeSantis has tried to do, going after prosecutors he didn't like, going after obviously Disney and other corporations. It's just a vision of government that is, I mean, frankly, un-American in a lot of ways. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Pat Dennis, is the president of American Bridge, a research rapid response and candidate tracking organization that works with the Democratic Party. Pat is a longtime opposition researcher, previously VP of research at American Bridge. He's been working in that field for most of his career and moved up recently to head the organization. So if you're interested in the Democratic Party's opposition research entities and what they do, you should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Pat Dennis of American Bridge Pack. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Pat. Hey, great to be here. So this is actually my first interview that I've done since mid-March. I don't know if you know, but I stopped recording and just used episodes I'd already recorded for a while. I had a a brain tumor, which was taken out. I would call myself 85% back to normal. Well, and, that's great to hear. And so I don't make any guarantees that I will be an excellent interviewer, but I'm I'll do my best. <laughs> well, um, I don't make any guarantees that I'll be an excellent interviewee, so we're we're at the same level. And I'm I'm glad to hear you're feeling better. It sounds uh sounds really tough. I am, and I'm up in Vermont, as which people who know me know is where I like to be in the summer, and makes me pretty happy. But I'm also pretty excited to get the chance to talk to you and and understand what American Bridge is up to. This key time in American politics, as it always seems to be. So, Pat, would you mind? just introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography. Yeah, no problem. So I'm Pat Dennis. I am the president of American Bridge 21st Century, where I have worked in different capacities since uh, 2014. And even before that, I did a, a year here in 2011, 2012, right when it was founded. To my core, I'm an opposition researcher. It's what I've always done in my career. I started as an intern, 2009, sort of swindled my way into a paid position from that internship and ultimately dropped out of college, did the campaign thing where I did oppo everywhere I could. Um, 
ended up at Bridge just because, you know, I was here early on and really loved the potential and the amount of focus we have on oppo research, rapid response, all the stuff that on a campaign is important, but it's far from the only thing you're doing. So yeah, happy to go into more detail about that, but that's my basic story. It's an interesting story. And I haven't talked to a huge number of people who are in opposition research, one or two here and there, but a lot of times people even running opposition research firms don't want to come on the podcast <laughs> yeah. to talk about what they do. And yeah, sneaky bunch, even though, even though it's, yeah, I think it's a lot less dark arts than sometimes just publicly available information or whatever. Totally um, agree. We have an inside joke where we always flag it when somebody refers to it as the dark arts, but it's very much, it's a regular art. What is that inside joke? I mean, it's just, you know, it's just such a cliche. Anytime anybody writes about Oppo. So yeah, all, all us, we all uh, send each other Slack messages and just say dark arts, you know, every time. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, I think for some reason, people writing about it assume there's more more nefariousness than there usually is. Occasionally, there are nefarious people. Well, if, if you make a habit of doing nefarious stuff, you're not long for this business. You're going to get into trouble. You're going to cause more damage to yourself, your candidate, than you do to the opponent eventually. Tell me a little bit about growing up. What got you into politics originally? You seem to have uh, a thing for it, a passion for it. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a family that, you know, I would describe as to the left, you know, progressive, but not necessarily in institutional politics. Like I went to vote with my parents all the time. We were always talking about politics. My parents didn't work in it, you know, weren't like active volunteers or anything. But, you know, when I was in high school, my cousin was actually a communications director on the Hill. I started as a press secretary, actually. And for our congressman up in New Jersey, and he would come up during campaign season and stay with us and work on the campaign for a few months and then go back down. So that's sort of how I became aware that politics was a career you could do. I went to college. I went to Rutgers. I did not plan on getting into politics. I majored in philosophy, which I enjoyed. I didn't particularly think about any career thing, but you know, right about. Did, I mean, you yeah. you mentioned that you dropped out of college. Mm-hmm. Did you have a chance to finish that up? Nope. Uh, much to my mom's chagrin, I have one semester remaining maybe 12 or 15 credits of all just like the worst classes I don't want to take. I, I think I have like a, a remedial algebra class that I failed to test out of at the beginning of college that I got to do and a few other things. But did that stand in the way of you becoming president of American Bridge? No, this is, you know, this organization is very much focused on results and uh, that kind of thing. I don't think me getting another 12 credits of undergrad would have made much of a difference. Well, obviously uh, you got, you landed this position anyway, after <laughs> showing them what you could do. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing I just loved about political campaigns, right? Is they'll take you, you know, I think I was 20 when I started and they'll just pile responsibility onto you until you can't handle anymore. And that's how you know how much you can take. I could handle more than I thought at the time. And it just, I loved it. I don't know how you phrased it, but you said something about sort of you are an opposition researcher through and through, mm-hmm. and that's kind of in your bones. What, what yeah. does that mean? What, what is an opposition researcher? What yeah. are their characteristics? Yeah. It's funny because these days, my actual day-to-day job, my staff gets very mad at me if I start doing any actual opposition research, because that's their job. Practically speaking, I'm an administrator, but you know, my identity is opposition researcher. And what that means is I am somebody who came up thinking about, especially earned media in politics, about 
collecting facts, stringing those facts together to tell stories that essentially are arguments about why your opponent shouldn't be elected and why you should be elected. And that's sort of all fuzzy. Uh, But if you spend 10 years essentially working to craft these arguments, really taking an analytical frame, you know, building up your ability to collect information that other people don't have access to or couldn't figure out how to get access to, and then sort of atomizing that information, taking it apart, and then putting it back together to make the points you want to make and making those points believable, understandable, so that if you tell them to a reporter... Um, who has no incentive to believe you or uh, to buy your narrative, they're crafted so well together that they really can't ignore it, that it, you know, it's a strong argument. And that can be anything from big picture. This is our overarching campaign message to small picture. This is why um, you know, this one thing our opponent did was bad or in reverse, why what we did was good. I mean, you said your first thing was an internship, which you mm-hmm. tr- were able to transition into paid work. What what was the internship? How did you get it? And how did you make that transition? So I started out in college, a buddy of mine had a he had an internship at a a media firm um, that was working for the governor of New Jersey. And through there, um, I was able to get an interview on Governor John Corzine's campaign in 2009, which was against Chris Christie in his first race. Real tough race. I think when I came on board, we were down about 14 in the polls. And I had no idea what a campaign research department was. I went in for this interview and sat down, basically no idea. The research director there was a guy named Jeff Whalen, who was a longtime reporter in the state. He worked for the Star-Ledger. He knew everything, uh, you know, just investigative reporter guy and started explaining, you know, we're this guy he hasn't known. He was U.S. attorney. We're going through all the records from when he was U.S. attorney. We need somebody to drive around to police stations and like ask if they have any records on this guy we need somebody to go up and collect stuff from this library go read microfilm and i'm like this is a job like you can help win elections doing this Uh, i also did some tracking i was the main tracker on the lieutenant governor candidate kim guindano back then um, but i also tracked Christie and really got that firsthand look at how the other side's political events go and, you know, the back and forth between the candidate and the and the people there and put a lot of miles on my car doing that. September came around. It was time to go back to school. And I uh, basically just lowered my asking price until they uh, they would uh, give me a paid job and I wouldn't have to go back. Because once once I had that taste of of real work and seeing the work I did come up in the newspaper, I just I couldn't I couldn't go back to writing five page essays. We live in such an polarized era that partisans can think almost any evil of the other party and and its players. When you were tracking, which meant you were you were following the candidate on the other side, I assume, and watching how they operate and watching their events, did you see anything fundamentally different about how their people behave? Well, so this was 2009. Obama had just come into office. This was sort of, there was New Jersey off-cycle races where it was sort of the first statewide campaign since Obama had been elected. And you really saw the very beginnings of the Tea Party. And I was sort of there watching that come together. There's the two parts of it. There was the Tea Party that was sort of forming at this point, um, really uh, putting together its confrontational way of doing politics, which I didn't see too much at um, the Christie events because they were on his side, but you saw him being confrontational and he would occasionally call me out 
point at me in the back of the room and say, you know, he works for the governor and like, I'm going to give you this message to take back to the governor and that sort of thing, which was kind of a standard thing Republicans do with trackers. Did it frighten you? Like when Trump sometimes uh, sort of sick the crowd on a reporter or somebody in, who he felt his, his opposition a protester or something, you, you could see people maybe worrying for their bodily health. Yeah, I was... 20 years old, completely felt invincible. I, I, I probably not the healthiest way to react. I loved it. I thought, oh, I'm in the mix here. You know, this guy's running for governor and he's yelling at me, you know, just some guy. So I don't know if uh, everybody would feel the same way about this stuff. You know, he had a couple, a couple guys working for him who were, uh, personally pretty confrontational and they would do stuff like try to shake me off because I wouldn't always know their events and they would try to drive erratically so I couldn't follow them and occasionally try to take a dive so it would look like I pushed them and things like that. It was all it was all very much a game, very silly game. What did you come to think of Chris Christie? Because, you know, he he read as quite a bully. um, But, you know, I also saw the way in 2016 he sort of became small around Trump. It embarrassed me to see the bully be bullied like that. What do you think that guy is like, really? I think a lot of the confrontation, it's a defense mechanism. I think he got very far using that sort of aggressive hit first, be meaner than the other guy thing just in life. It worked very well for him until until it didn't. And I think you're right. He kind of fell apart once he hit somebody who could bully him back. But, you know, running statewide in New Jersey, where, I mean, the most important thing in politics is the way you seem. And he was very good at just seeming like the guy at the bar talking about politics and like, oh, we got to take down these people and these people are bad and telling it like it is. And it worked for him for two terms. And like so many people fell apart once it hit Trump. Yeah. Beyond that first job, You said very briefly your career, but like name the places and the people you actually work for and some of the things that you learned along the way. Yeah. So I went up to Long Island in 2010 uh, in the first congressional district there to work for uh, then Congressman Tim Bishop. It was pretty rare (laughs) uh, and still is pretty rare for there to be embedded research staff on a congressional campaign. This was a pretty tight race. The Tea Party wave coming in, things were not looking great. You know, that seat later, um, a few cycles later flipped to Lee Zeldin and was a difficult place to run as a Democrat. So I came on and I was essentially doing it all on the research front. We had a research consultant, but I was writing research documents, which I was not necessarily qualified to write, but very eager to do so anyway. I was making videos. I was tracking myself and organizing volunteer trackers. I was making sort of opposition research websites. That was an incredible race. Our opponent was a guy named Randy Outschuler. Had his previous experience was running a company that specialized in outsourcing jobs to India. Like that was literally his, the entire thing they did. They would go to your company and say, hey, you've got all these employees here. They're so expensive. Contract it out to us, whatever they're doing, and we'll do it in India. Uh, kind of an oppo researcher's dream in a lot of ways. So, you know, we were just hammering him all the time, which ultimately I think, you know, opposition researchers are want to pin victories on oppo research. But that message ultimately in the 2010 cycle, we ended up winning by 500 so votes and didn't get that certified until December. But that message was really the thing that carried us through that he's destroying American jobs. And it sounds like you were 
I mean, is it right to say you were pretty much really enjoying yourself? Oh, I loved it. I've always loved it. (laughs) (laughs) I would see the work we did and it would it would be on TV and the paid media and we'd be calling reporters and saying, hey, did you see this other thing we found this video of him talking about how people in the Philippines are harder workers than Americans send that stuff out. And it was a lot of fun and, you know, very difficult. I don't know if you're familiar with some people in the like backpacking community or the adventure community refer to type one fun, which is fun while it's happening. And then type two fun, which is fun in retrospect. A lot of that stuff was fun in retrospect because there was a lot of late nights and hard work, but truly loved it. Yeah. I think a lot of people who are in college or sometimes all the way through their career, never find a job that's either type one or type two fun. (laughs) So it's, you know, it's, it's cool that you did. Um, Where did you go from there? So I stayed on Long Island for a little bit, Suffolk County, New York, which is, you know, uh, an enormous county. It's sort of on the eastern end of Long Island, a few, I think, three million people, maybe more. There was a county executive race and there was a guy, Steve Levy, who was a Democrat county executive, switched parties to the Republicans and the Democratic sort of infrastructure there wanted to throw everything at him to take him down. So I come in and also very extremely... um, rare to have a research director on a county executive race, but I came in as a research director and also a comms director just so we could double up. And I start digging into, for me, what seemed like the most interesting thing is just cross-referencing. He's got all these donors. He's raising so much money and like also is, you know, giving out all these contracts from the county and giving all this various levels of preferential treatment, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, something's going on with this fundraising. I'm sure this isn't all about board. So I start digging into it and I'm, I'm finding stuff that is like interesting. I'm like, we're going to win this race. Midway through that cycle, the, uh, the district attorney came in and basically reached a settlement where he seized Levy's entire campaign account for the state, <laughs> just took all his money uh, because of basically undisclosed, this is 10, 12 years ago, so I don't remember all the details, but basically undisclosed legal problems. And as part of the settlement, he gave up his entire campaign fund and dropped out of the race, uh, (laughs) thereby scooping all of the work I had been doing, but also, I guess, validating my instincts to some extent. So that's when I came to American Bridge the first time. Who was in charge of American Bridge then? Uh, so it had just been founded. So uh, Rodell Molyneux was the president. Bradley Baychock was the founder, who was um, also on this show in the past. Um, Shauna Daly was the research director who sort of hired me. And I was coming on basically as one of the senior researchers looking into presidential candidates. So I was starting out on John Huntsman, if you remember him, and then very quickly moving on through the clown show into Mitt Romney and doing all that work. What did it feel like? there it's kind of assume it's a little bit like a startup um and it's it's in a if i remember correctly it's in a kind of a constellation of organizations that are related and share some fundraising and so on what was the culture like what was the vibe like it was great i mean in a few ways, it was exactly what I needed at that point in my career. I had good mentors on the chris Christie race, but you know I'd never really like, you know, done the committee thing of churning out research books or the consultant thing of like, you know, writing these sort of more formulaic things. I'd never at that point worked on a Senate race. And I, it really in the early days and now just like brought in all these people from across politics and we were building it from nothing back then. We were literally putting our chairs together, like Ikea chairs and building our desks. 
the community was incredible. You know, I'm still friends with those people and talk to them all the time. There's a thing on campaigns where we'd sit around and we'd build up a research shop over six or eight months and talk about what we could do if we just had a little bit more resources, some more time. You know, we're doing this for multiple cycles. And at American Bridge, it was basically like, put your money where your mouth is. Like, now you get to you get to do it. Um, this is going to be a piece of infrastructure. So, you know, build for the long term, but your ideas better be good and they better work. If you're at the DCCC or the DNC, like these are all great institutions. The research shops go back a long time. But those organizations are party infrastructure. Like they are going to exist. A place like American Bridge, we very much, especially in those early days, had to make it stick. You know, we had to make a name for ourselves. We had to show that we were really providing value, show that you should keep pieces of infrastructure around that that are like this. And that's when, you know, we start building out some of our technology that's kind of unique, our video database and various tools and things like that. So yeah, it was extremely exciting. The people you named not very big. How did American Bridge change over time? And how did your role change over time? Yeah, well, so I stayed for a year. Um, I ended up leaving mid-cycle 2012 to go do a Senate race because I want some management experience not campaign management, but managing researchers. The nice thing about Bridge is it's really, we started from a baseline and we just aim to get a little bit better all the time. And when we learn to do something, we write it down. We make sure that everybody knows how to do that next time. When you have a success, like we take it apart, we have a failure, we take it apart. So a big part of the change has just been like, a honing of what we do in our methodology and our techniques and our training, which is extremely important. And then the other thing is just the expansion of our targeting over the years. You know, we have really starting out presidential, Senate, a few governors, a few House races, and we've really moved into, um, you know, 2022 cycle. We had a ton of Secretary of State's races we covered, which historically would not, you wouldn't be looking to invest a ton of oppo research in a, you know, a statewide uh, further down ballot like that. Um, You know, Attorney General's races, state legislative races, state Supreme Court races, places where, you know, the playbook for how to use oppo didn't really exist yet. That's been a just an ongoing story for Bridge, figuring out how to make a difference for in other non-traditional campaigns. What kind of organization is it? Is it it's a super PAC? I mean, yeah, we're a super PAC. Who, who can you coordinate with? Or is, are there any boundaries about who you can share and work with? Probably in our purest form, I would say we are the hub for you know the constellation of Democratic super PACs. Our rule is if we can legally coordinate, and that's just people on the independent expenditure side, we will give you our research, You know, assuming you're ideologically aligned. So folks like Senate Majority Pack, Emily's Lists, Independent Expenditures, folks like that, you know, we just give the work away and also the tracking footage and all that. There are limits. We have a few websites, you know, our own website, AmericanBridgePack.org, but also uh, TrumpResearchBook.com, DeSantisResearchBook.com, Reprofiles.com. These are places where we just post the research and get it out there. So um, everybody essentially can read it. And honestly, like 
thinking about that, those were designed sort of for reporters to see, for operatives to see as a starting point for everybody. And I've been really surprised to see how many voters care about that stuff too. You know, I'm on Twitter and I see I see just normal voters sharing these sort of like issue reports we put together on DeSantis and Trump to argue with each other, which is something that I think is potentially something we should be thinking more about in the future. So you went away to a Senate campaign, which one and how long were you away before you came back? I was out on Elizabeth Warren in 2012, her race against Scott Brown. I went out there over the summer. And after that race, I went out to Ohio in 2013, where I was the research director for the state party. I recommend everybody coming up through campaigns to try to spend a cycle in true state politics, you know, either in a solid state party, some state level organization, because I mean, that I think I was... 23 and 24 there and like being the research director at the state party is like a level in dc where you would have to work 25 years to get to get to that level but in state politics it's a lot less crowded and you can really really make a difference so i i came out there to hopefully start getting ready for the 2014 election to try to take down john Kasich. so i was way early on way before we had a candidate essentially digging into his economic development programs, digging into state parties, chairman and operatives and all the case of cronies and myself as research director and a guy, Jared Kurtz, who was communications director, really just had an incredible rapport going where I would dig something up, send it over to Jared and he would get it in the press just incredibly quickly. And then I dig up something else and get it to Jared and he'd get it in the press extremely quickly. And we just had this sort of factory mindset there, just like an incredible amount of negative news stories, which is something that I've really brought back to bridge with me when I came and is incredibly fun and rewarding. Did you ever run across a research software as a service thing originally called Vigilant, Mike Phillips put yeah. together? Did you ever use yeah. that? Was that a valuable thing? I did demo it. It was... I. And it still exists. I believe he sold it. It was valuable for sure. Uh, that was at a part, a point where we were sort of investing in our own, own tools as well at American Bridge. It was very similar to a lot of what we had internally, and we didn't end up buying it. But I think for many researchers, it was a huge time saver and a great thing to buy. Can you say something about what you were learning about American politics when you're working on these campaigns and you're working at American Bridge? You're kind of seeing a little bit behind the scenes where information comes from, how rarely a news story is sort of an accident or the work of of the reporter on their own, but the different teams are out there trying to make things come to the press. What did you learn about how the system works? Yeah. And it's not my goal to say like, oh, you know, journalists don't do anything. Journalists do a lot and they're extremely diligent, at least some of them, most of them. But it is a pretty normal experience at American Bridge. Well, we will, we will hire somebody on, say, the communications team from outside who hadn't worked here before. And they sort of get plugged into our ongoing email list of just like, we call it jackpots, but which is the stories we've pitched or information that we've put out there that gets picked up. Uh, and the, their head sort of starts spinning a little bit with exactly how many of those we're dealing with. Uh, you know, sometimes... 30, 35, 40 of them a week. And if something goes viral, you know, potentially hundreds in a week. We work together with reporters, right? It is 
very rare that we pitch a story and then the reporter goes, oh, great. And then just like writes what we have there. Usually we're all sort of chasing down the same sort of things. And we have resources. We have no deadlines. We have folks who are able to specialize and we're essentially able to add something uh, that folks on their own or with a small team at a newspaper wouldn't necessarily be able to do themselves. We are, for example, quite good at putting in FOIAs and waiting eight years for them to come back. So if you're Department of State, Department of Defense, it takes a long time to get those FOIAs back. But we, you know, we're around that sort of long term. One example, recently, uh, Ron DeSantis came out, he worked at Guantanamo Bay, and there were accusations that he was complicit in torture there. That was a story. We were not the first persons to hear about that. We didn't invent the storyline. What we were able to do was see the few things that were kind of out there, right? One of the detainees went on a podcast. There was some documentation, evidence. There was um, some other things. And in that case, basically what we did is, you know, we went around and said, hey, you know, just so you know, like this is out there. This is going to be a story. Like everybody knows if this guy gets picked up, this is going to have to be a new story at some point. I just want to make sure you're aware of it. Here's sort of the starting point and, uh, you know, take it from there. Other things, it's just a pure investigative thing where we have somebody with an incredible spreadsheet and they're able to, you know, do some data crunching and figure out all this stuff about how the state economic development fund is corrupt. But, you know, the key part there is really documenting your work, right? Making sure uh, writing for an audience that does not trust you because, you know, there is no reason to expect reporters to tr trust us. Everything we do has to be real, it has to be verified, and reporters wouldn't work with us anymore if the stuff we sent them didn't fully check out. So it would be an existential threat if we weren't extremely diligent. So if you if you step back and think about, like, the role that American Bridge and other opposition research entities and people play in the process, do you think it's a healthy part of politics? I do. I mean... People worry about this in the sense that they think we're pitching the most toxic stuff. The most toxic stuff is coming out of places, push pulls, underhanded mass texts, things that are not true, that are not verified. I see the work we do as essentially democracy works best when people have information about who they're voting for. And it's our job to take that information, run it through sources that verify it, folks who make sure that, you know, the things uh, aren't just pure partisan spin, but things that are real, add it to the ecosystem and let it influence people's decisions. And that's, you know, sort of ideally what they're doing on the other side as well. I think the other side, to a large extent, uh, especially during the Trump years, sort of let that atrophy I argue with people a lot who use the phrase like post-truth or, um, you know, just like this post-Trump world where oppo doesn't matter. People still care about truth. People still care about verified facts. And I think you've seen that in the way that, you know, sort of Trumpian, extremely at best stretching the truth, frequently made up or ad hominem attacks just aren't particularly effective. <laughs> That's why Trump candidates tend to lose. Trump himself got lucky and won one election and has not won since. And it's not a sustainable way to run things. So I, I'm very proud of the work we do. Everything we do stands on, our, on its own. And uh, it's also a ton of fun. When I ask people in different kind of parts of the progressive ecosystem about kind of the balance of power between the parties writ large, they often say, oh, the Republicans are more funded. They are 30, 40, 50 years ahead of us in this area. 
you suggested that maybe in opposition research, they've let things atrophy lately. How do we stack up against them in this one area currently? So in some ways, it's completely different. You know, people talk about, quote unquote, the liberal media, but the the liberal media has its own incentives. They are running businesses. They conceive of themselves as fair and balanced and aim to look at the facts and uncover the truth. While Republican oppo researchers are in a lot of ways pitching to a enclosed ecosystem of conservative publications, including Fox News, but including many other websites, TV stations that, uh, you know, in their ideal way, it works is uh, an echo chamber. In reality, uh, I think that echo chamber is starting to fall apart uh, in a lot of ways, but it is not any kind of adversarial or challenging place for them. So it creates this incentive to play to the base. And this is mirrored in overall electoral strategy in both parties. It's my contention that working with a real media that is actually trying to uncover the truth and not merely trying to report things because it looks good from an electoral standpoint actually forces you to make your arguments better. And when your arguments are better, your campaigns are better. So that's sort of how I see it. In a lot of ways, there are a lot of folks on the Republican side who are extremely well-funded. And I would just say that being well-funded, especially in the conservative nonprofit space, has not always translated to effective programs. It has frequently translated into uh, a lot of people getting new patios added onto their house, but it does not create a culture of, say, scrappiness and effectiveness. There's an article I saw in the New York Times some time ago about how you guys were working more at local politics, doing opposition research more at scale for state legislative offices and things like that. What's going on there and why is that important? Yeah, it's an incredibly hard challenge too, especially when you're dealing with folks who have very low name recognition. Maybe putting out a news story that they don't pay their property taxes is not going to result in some huge swing. So, you know, making sure that we're effective um, on those areas. One, if we find that some state legislator who is in a tough race doesn't pay their property taxes, we will still pitch that. But a big part of it is making sure people understand the stakes of the race, making sure people understand how impactful these state legislatures are and the kind of things they come up. I mean, especially after Roe has fallen and after the Dobbs decision, like that is something that is extremely important to educate people about. And something you can do, the sort of behind the scenes look at doing oppo on these folks They're not like somebody running for senator governor. They don't have 30,000 pages of news clips that you got to dig through and find the one thing. Some of them don't have any. Some of them are regular folks who do just happen to want to go into the legislature and take away a woman's right to choose. But there isn't necessarily a huge backlog of things to attack on. In that case, the important strategy is making sure the stakes are clear, but also tying them into the other folks in their caucus who are controversial, who are the worst of the worst, who are the MAGA folks who are making a big show of it and really turning off voters. That's a big part of it. And then, of course, candidate tracking. Um, A lot of these folks do not, you know, the media doesn't have capacity in many places. There aren't local publications. And, you know, where maybe 30 years ago, there would be a uh, beat reporter sitting in their town hall. These days, there's nothing. So um, we try to make sure we're there 
filming those things so that if they say something to the local young Republican club that's all MAGA pilled, that they want to stay there, that it doesn't stay there. That's sort of the truth they're telling is able to make it to voters. It sounds like a a vast amount of information to try to collect or to process and make sense of and deploy. Is there any um, use of or intention to use things like AI to go through that or other algorithmic plans? So it's a question. It's something I've been discussing with a lot of people. And I'm not particularly talented, but enthusiastic amateur programmer. And I've been playing around with these tools on sort of the API level for a long time. I got into research very at the very tail end of um, the phrase people would refer to Google kids in research, which was the idea that a real researcher uses LexisNexis um, and public records requests. And when Google came out, this new tool, yeah, but you know the sources are no good. You can't trust anything that's just on the web. Google is not a replacement for LexisNexis, which is totally true. And you know the way that conflict between the Google kids and the old school people played out was obviously you need both, right? Uh, those tools are both indispensable, especially as the internet got better, Google became more important, but also just, you know, as paywalls came up, LexisNexis got more important. So taking that to AI, I think what everybody has played with at this point is ChatGPT. I would not recommend as a researcher typing into ChatGPT, what are the 10 most controversial points about this candidate because it'll make up three of them or it'll make up seven of them and you won't know which ones. That can be a fun brainstorming activity, but that is not ultimately going to be the value of these tools. I was thinking more of like, you've collected data, but it's more than you can manage. Can you, I mean, we had a congressional candidate who was elected despite complete fabrication of his resume, right? And that happens from time to time, particularly at a lower level in politics. If something could just at the 7,000 candidates or whatever there are for state legislative office, go through and check the basic things, maybe something could be helpful. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. The real issue with a lot of these tools is there is no a sort of giant codex out there of like, here are all the basic truths to compare things against. What you need is a researcher or, you know, at least a human being who can sit down and make the comparisons. That said, I really believe that these tools can help speed it up. And there are a lot of things just matching things together, um, sort of like what you discussed there. We have tools that do that surprisingly well. Projects that used to take a spreadsheet and two weeks these days for us can, you know, can take two or three days, sometimes two or three hours. All this technology, I think, is incredibly important, and you know we're going to keep investing in it. That said, politics, voters are humans, candidates are humans. They have human judgments. You know, I think to a large extent, people vote based on the way a candidate seems. Does he seem like me? Does he seem like somebody I want to have a beer with? Does he seem like he understand me? And as long as that's true, like there needs to be a human doing this stuff, ultimately exercising human judgment over the information we put out. In 2022, you had a paid influencer program. What was that? And are you continuing that in, into this current election cycle? Yeah. So American Bridge at our founding, you know, we did not originally do any paid work ourselves. As time has gone on and we've sort of seen 
areas where we thought we could add value, we've expanded that. So in 2020, in the presidential race, we ran a very targeted program on TV and digital, really focused on Obama-Trump counties in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, those key states, and really focused on creating a permission structure, you know, put real people on TV expressing real concerns about Trump, uh, and really just like creating, we were not under the impression that we were going to win a lot of these rural counties, but really creating a permission structure for a lot of folks, especially women, um, to show that their concerns were real, other people shared them, and it's okay to defect. So that program was really successful. So we came into 2022, basically, you know, 2021, 2022, basically looking to build on that. So yeah, there's the influencer program you mentioned, which sort of goes off that same thesis, which is people, real other people who are, uh, you know, seem like them, who have the same concerns, you know, some of these influencers, depending on what they're um, influencing about, maybe just like their life overall or some specific subject. It really centers the things they're talking about in a relatable world that essentially, you know, we're talking about information here and the best way for folks to get it. So yeah, we had that influencer program. I guess I don't quite understand how that works. So do, what what did some someone get for doing what exactly? So folks who have audiences, uh, you know, especially women, if you look at after the Dobbs decision, right, making clear what the Biden administration was going to do to help fix this, how Republicans real... Um, past statements and also future goals around this issue. These are things where you can send a mailer and, you know, some percentage of people might read it, or you can have a trusted messenger who these folks already follow on Instagram or already follow on YouTube, go through these same points. And uh, they both have their place, but really, you know, the influencer is just an incredibly powerful way to communicate with folks. And you're doing that again in 2024? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the websites you mentioned was this uh, a DeSantis information book. Yeah, De- DeSantis research book. Yeah, dot com. What's in it? Why would people go to it? Yeah. So historically in Oppo research, uh, the the research book is sort of like the secret tome and like only the, the most powerful of the consultants get to see it and the pollsters and they gather together in a conference room somewhere and look at the data and hash out what the campaign's message is going to be. And those books, they're comprehensive. I mean, we've written research books that are thousands and thousands of pages long. They are not designed to hone in. They're designed to give you the world of possible attacks on a candidate. We've sort of... switch it up in a a little bit. News consumers are a lot more sophisticated than they used to be. The world of the media is so much more fragmented. We've essentially, you know, just started taking these what used to be internal research products and making them public a lot of the time. So we do try to sort everything into some big narratives. But ultimately, it's uh, who's who of reasons not uh, to vote for Ron DeSantis, but also a look back at his past career. What did he do over the years? What was he like in the House? Those votes on Social Security and Medicare under uh, the Ryan years. How was he effective as a member of 
the House, which, you know, he was not particularly uh, <laughs> exactly a legislative powerhouse in there or somebody who made a lot of friends. But also things like, you know, his tenure as governor, which I think his demeanor has gotten a lot of attention in the media in the media over the years or over the past few months. But I think a little bit undercovered is as governor, you know, housing is completely unaffordable in the state. People's insurance on their houses is like utterly unaffordable. There's just issues with the education system beyond the culture war issues he's trying to create just about, you know, general effectiveness of the education system. All these sort of nuts and bolts areas, um, which maybe don't appeal to every single voter, but something in there appeals to any voter. So that is the goal. Make everything available, all the information. You know, we comb through 100,000 pages and we provide you with the 500 of the most important pages, basically. Was there anything that is particularly surprising that came out in doing that research on DeSantis that might have real legs or say he got the nomination, you know, might be a, a really important, pivotal issue? I'm not sure everybody understands the extent to which he's weaponized the Florida government against his perceived enemies. This is something that American voters do not like. You saw it with the collapse of Chris Christie after Bridgegate, which if people don't remember, Chris Christie was punishing a mayor for failing to endorse him. That is like small potatoes compared to what Ron DeSantis has tried to do, going after prosecutors he didn't like, going after obviously Disney and other corporations. It's just a vision of government that is, I mean, frankly, un-American in a lot of ways. It might be confusing because it's what Trump says that Biden is doing. And it's always he in particular, but a lot of them seem to make they try to get out in front of what they can be accused of by accusing someone else who hasn't done it of doing it worse. Exactly. But voters are pretty smart. Those arguments appeal to folks who are sort of ensconced in the Fox News cinematic universe, voters who are very difficult to get anyway. I don't think that is a particularly effective message against Democrats simply because the facts don't back it up and voters do pay attention to that. So very recently, you became president of American Bridge. You had been, what, vice president? Yeah. I ran all of our research and tracking previously. And it was Jessica Floyd who who yeah. preceded you. What occasioned her to leave and how did you get chosen? What What's the story there? Yeah. Jess Floyd, incredible mentor, great president of American Bridge, taught me just a ton. You know, so much of this I know how to do opposition research. I know how to manage a staff. I know even how to manage a pretty big staff. The thing I sort of had to come in and learn is some of the bigger, you know, leadership things, the tough decisions, the allocation between two options where you want to do both, but you really can't and you got to pick. Um, bringing, you know, keeping people inspired and interested in their work and bringing them together. And those are things that just really helped me out with a lot. So she got the opportunity to go back to the Hub Project where she is running that operation, which is a big progressive educational network of uh, of groups. So, you know, she moved on and, uh, you know, I was very thankful. I She recommended me as president. I've been here for a long time. I can't say I honestly expected it. I always saw myself more as behind the scenes, oppo research, a mile deep on the things I specialized in. But, um, you know, she thought uh, I had what it takes, sort of recommended it to some folks on our board and some folks. And uh, 
it it worked out. So how do you like it? It's it is a different thing to manage a whole operation. Things come at you from more directions, I guess. Uh, do you like it? Do you think you're a good fit for it? What what are you learning? Yeah, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm 23 again. I learned these four these you know key skills in politics fairly early on, and I spent the next 10 years honing them and getting good at them, and you know trying to be a manager and all that. And now I am learning just a whole new suite of skills. How do you talk to a donor? How do you uh, put a budget together that's going to take these 10 things into account that might happen in the future? How do you just find time to get work done when you know the operations team needs you to sign off on this document and the comms team has a quote in your inbox and 15 other things are going on? That's just been a learning experience. But honestly, it's an incredible challenge, but I very much like it. It's been, you know, in some ways humbling. You know, some of the things I used to roll my eyes at a little bit or, uh, grumble about somewhat I find myself doing uh, just because it's like, oh, that's why they did that. All right. That, that makes sense. So yeah, it's an incredible learning experience. I love it. Really uh, forcing me back into a, a learning mode in my career. Is there a question I should have asked you about what you're doing in American Bridge or your career? <sighs> well, my career, I think we covered quite well. You were quite thorough. I think we covered it all. Well, it's definitely been an honor to talk to you. Is there anything else you want to say? Just thank you for having me. Um, I think this, you know, I've learned a ton from your guests um, having listened through and uh, really excited that you had me on to share what I've learned. It was definitely fun. That was Pat. He's at AmericanBridgePack.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.